where we had pretty severe lockdowns. Our merchants were all sitting at home and our revenue literally dropped by like 70-80% week over week overnight, uh, I would say, which obviously in the numbers is pretty drastic, but even more so when you think about the millions of merchants that obviously don't get a salary because they're merchants, but they don't have any income because they're locked out at home. That's Mark Alexander Christ, the co-founder of SumUp, a fintech company best known for supplying card readers to small businesses so they can take payments. You may have seen them, and you probably use them because they work with over 4 million merchants worldwide. But things weren't looking so rosy when the pandemic started. It hit their customers hard because people weren't out shopping. So, SumUp had to quickly adapt to this new environment. It's safe to say they did all right, though, because the company was recently valued at 8 billion euros. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm a founder myself, so I try to ask the questions you most want answered. Our goal is to show what it really takes to build a startup. Mark and his co-founders launched SumUp 10 years ago. Prior to that, he co-founded Miyosato, an online fashion gallery which didn't work out. You'll hear more about that later. But he hasn't always been an entrepreneur. He actually started out in the dark side, the corporate world. I graduated from in the year 2002, at which point this whole career as an entrepreneur, having a startup was just not happening. There was a dot-com bubble that kind of quickly flew by, but not close enough to kind of uh, make it to the university or get some further engagement, except for a little bit of gambling on the Neuer Markt. Um, and then a, f- a friend of a friend did an internship in New York, and all I knew was it's New York and well-paid. And then during the interview, I figured out it's in finance and real estate. And uh, that's how I ended up. I ended up basically with my first internship that then also hired me as, a, as an analyst. And that was like the first three years of my working life. Long hours, hard work. I would say long hours, but relative long hours. So it was a small fund, small five-people team. Um, we're actually, I think, the two people leading the teams have been in the company 15 and 20 years. So very well-established pr- uh, processes, good customers, uh, good way of, of earning income and so on. So obviously during deal times, as you do in real estate investment banking, there's a little bit of a crunch. But then in a small team, once you do a transaction, there's also six to eight weeks where it's a a little bit more quiet. Um, My boss actually told me that the successful people in real estate don't work in the summer on Fridays. And as we were less successful, we did like half days on Fridays, Mm -hmm. but then uh, obviously worked a lot throughout the week and throughout the year. It's quite unusual to hear that about an American company. I mean, that that culture sounds very European, not American. Well, the company was called European Investors and had strong European (laughs) roots. So it was a little bit of this best of both worlds. Yeah, there we go. That makes a lot of sense. I'm having a bit of the, as an aside, I'm having a bit of the European experience at the moment with, uh, we have a physical product at my company, the company that I run aside from Secret Leaders called Heights. And we're trying to get something out of one of their warehouses. And they're like, oh, we can't do that. It's August. And we're like, oh, are you on holiday? And they're like, no, no, we've had our holiday. It's just August. And we're like, okay. So what does that mean? They're like, you know, August in France, just, you know, we're not going to do it. And we're like, okay. Um, And it's not quite like that in Germany or England, that's for sure. Um, Or obviously America. So 
Um, coming back to New York then, um, as I understand, you, you know, you stayed living in New York for quite some time, right? So talk to me a little bit about your journey um, leading up to you leaving. Like, what made you leave? What were your uh, motivations? What happened? What changed? So I lived in the U.S. for maybe, first I've studied in New York before, then an internship, and then we probably worked there three, four years. And then I literally got poached away by J.P. Morgan um, to basically build up or help building out the European uh, real estate structured finance team. And I also privately had a little bit the feeling that life in New York is very exciting and very good in terms of going out a lot, meeting a lot of people and so on. And the feeling was that maybe turning 30, you should settle down and go for a more quiet lifestyle or not, maybe quiet is not the right world, but a more settled lifestyle. Um, so this, this having settled and looking for a quieter life actually turned out that JP Morgan, when you earlier asked about the lifestyle of European investors, I worked maybe, I don't know, 60, 70, 75 hours to then go to JP Morgan to literally work a hundred hours plus. We had like team, team meetings Sunday afternoon because we were too busy to do those during the week. And having just moved, I had like a very limited social life, I would say, and basically worked 24-7. And then since I was in real estate structured finance, if you remember, remember in 2008, there was the real estate crisis where literally our business was giving out loans, then structuring them with the belief that once they're structured, the risk goes away and then sold, sell those pieces off to everybody. Turns out the risk does not go away. Um, and that's how the whole crisis works. And I walked into, into my boss and said, listen, we don't have a business model here. What we're doing here is not needed uh, in the world. Doesn't create economic uh, um, uh, value. And uh, that's when I quit, which unfortunately was a, not the best decision financially because most of my friends got a good redundancy payment uh, when the team was wound down. Uh, half a year later, but it gave me a lot of peace of mind and freedom. And I was uh, relatively young with a good uh, good bank account. And I just took that uh, that luxury to travel the world and think about what to do next. So I spent a lot of time in, in uh, Asia because I've never been there an extended uh, period before in my life. And I feel like that's a very exciting part of the world uh, to learn more about. Also spent quite some time in Latin America. And also went back to New York for a couple of months where I did like fun stuff. So I was living in New York, hanging out in the evenings with all of my friends. And I'm wondering, what do I do during the day? And then I thought, okay, let's do something that's useful for my career. So I was thinking about rhetoric classes or stuff like this, but then it sounded boring. So instead, I ended up enrolling in an acting course that definitely showed me I'm not a good actor. And uh, there's plenty of skills in the world that I don't have, but it was uh, a lot of fun. So a lot of experiences in those two years. You just wake up in the morning and wonder uh, what are you in the mood for to, to do today? And the answer sometimes is acting. I can imagine I can imagine if you're somewhere like that where that's very much a scene, it all makes sense. Okay, so um, you've done your two years. Um, you've had some experiences. You sort of woken up on the day and wondered what to do with yourself. But after two years, you decide enough is enough. What, like, what makes you stop? You, you make... You make this sounding very ambitious and organized. This is not exactly what happened. I was going on a vacation and had another, I think it was the third time I was going to Thailand. And then a friend of mine called me and said, come to Berlin. There's a company there already live, which didn't really make a ton of sense to me what this means, this being live. 
and sent me two links. One was CityDeal and one was Groupon. And I found two websites that look pretty much the same by two completely different companies, one in the US and one in Germany. And then I thought, okay, enough of vacation. Let's go to Berlin and check out what these people are doing. And then literally joined, I think, the the young city deal that then was sold to Groupon maybe five months later in the week of the launch or like a week after launch. Amazing. So some might say you got lucky. Some might say that you contributed massively to the success in that rocket ship experience. What, how would you say? It's definitely lucky to have landed there. And then obviously once I was there, I did my best to contribute. And uh, was that a, a, one of the rocket companies, City Deal? Rocket Internet Group? Was that, was that what it was? Yes. Yeah, yeah it was. It was uh, these were the days when uh, Oli and Mark were still pretty active themselves. And uh, I, I, I was literally starting my day at 7 a.m. in the morning with one of them and ending at like 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, um, obviously the, I'd say, infamous uh, entrepreneurs across, across Europe, um, you know, sort of the, the good, the bad, the ugly, but certainly the ambitious and the extreme, right? So what was it like learning from um, such characters? I think it was, it was a very interesting environment and I'm definitely on the good side where I like them quite a lot because I think they do amazing stuff in the way they build organizations they, they instill a need for action and for speed and just, let's say, focus on the absolute essential and then kind of relentlessly build that out. I think we, I joined at like the turn of the year, like in January, and I think we sold to Groupon maybe May or so. I, I, I worked for Groupon for maybe another six weeks after the merger, but I figured out that the, the merged company is a, is a different environment and a bit less fun. And then um, since this was my first, internet experience i had the feeling that everything you do um online kind of obviously grows as in you're one of the fastest growing, growing companies of the world and from there started a small fashion platform that actually allows uh, young and upcoming designers to directly engage with their customers and also sell, sell on the platform um, got a bit of venture funding i think mainly because i was one of the first leaders to come out of uh, the city deal Groupon piece, but then failed pretty miserably just because the, the market and the idea kind of sucked. But it took me a year to realize. What was it like for you to, to fail? I guess you hadn't really had uh, experience like this before, right? You'd been a um, successful career in banking. You chose when to quit as well, very importantly. That's good good insight before everything comes crumbling down, you go traveling, you get invited, essentially, to go join a startup that becomes its own little rocket ship and uh, runaway success within five months. I guess it must be hard at that point to experience your first proper failure. So talk to us a little bit about it. I, I would love to say that I had this feeling of failure, because I think our investors were very, very fair to us. So I think we raised something like, I don't know, half a million euros back in the days of which we drew down the first half. And then when it came to obviously missed all the milestones because we literally sold like, I don't know, 20 pieces of fashion or 40 pieces of fashion in our lifetime. Um, and they were very fair to, to me and my co-founder, Max, um, that they said, look, we can get you the, the other half of the money and we can even see whether we can drum up some other investors. But you really need to believe that you can turn this around 
and make this a success in the next three months. And I spent like an intense, I would say, long weekend with my co-founder, really looking at the team, the market, the opportunity. And then we just decided that we're better off by just plugging the plug and and not going forward, which was a very sad uh, moment because I think we had like 25 employees or so at the time that we had to let go. Um, also, some senior people that literally joined us like four weeks before um, that were uh, somewhat surprised at the at the uh, reality of an early stage startup. But we both felt that it's the it's the best thing to kind of give up and not go forward rather than kind of becoming one of those walking deads and keep on trying, rolling up the stone a mountain that you believe that you're not going to get up there. It's a really interesting and hard problem, I think, with entrepreneurs because, you know, there are many stories of people who persevere past all of those moments and they find their thing. You know, they pivot, they pivot, they have the right team, they keep testing, they keep trying, they find the thing. Um, and yet at the same time, 99% of the times, the sensible thing to do is what you did, which is to say the data isn't there, the market isn't there, it's just not the right idea and we should just stop. Um there is no right or wrong, right? It's just very hard in the moment to make these decisions, but it certainly feels like the brave decision to say it's not the right thing for us, we should stop. It was definitely not an easy decision. And I, I, I do have a lot of compassion also for people that keep on working on this. And literally, we had friends that did a very similar uh, um, business model, except that rather than buy, selling directly from designers, they tried to get all the fashion boutiques on the platform. And they started probably a year or two before us and have been beating on this thing another five years after us um, to then also just realize in the end that it doesn't work. So we were definitely the the luckier ones. But I think for us, it was also a combination of factors that the whole market, we didn't really believe in too much, at least from what we've learned. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. 
You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So it didn't feel like we want to keep on working on that market. And also as a, I think one of the big challenges when you start, uh, 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 do a startup, you don't really have a network. You don't have a clue what you're doing. Guess what? You also don't have employer branding or talent acquisition. So you literally, after trying to hire great people for a couple of weeks, then you just get anybody through the door um, as you kind of need hands on deck. So it was also not like we have this amazing hand-curated team that we kind of uh, worked together and went through the whole uh, motion with, but it was just kind of a pretty random group of people um, that we just didn't, <laughs> didn't feel like we now take this team and we solve a different problem with them. That's a really great insight, actually, because I think you know, it's very easy to talk about um, team when you're talking about startups, and it's very easy to make it sound like a cliche or a soundbite. But the practical reality of what you've just described is, I think, super relatable as well. My last company, very similar space, by the way, it was called Grabble, um, and it was online fashion, shopping, e-commerce, app, and, you know, uh, a very similar experience, FYI. Um and yeah, I really related when you said you you have your um, your desires of who you want to get and, you know, you're waiting, waiting, waiting. But at the same time, you've got fires burning everywhere. You have problems you need to solve. They only get solved with people and you don't have months and months to wait to hire the person and then to wait for their contract to start. You kind of just need to get on with it. And so you end up making actually a compromise here and a compromise there. And before you know it, you've made a lot of compromises and the quality of your team starts to show up in the quality of your product and your execution. Um, it's actually one of the most challenging parts of building a startup. Which, which, but I think it's completely fine because, I mean, we, we literally hired people where we had one applicant for a job and then we just hired them for that job or hired somewhere else where we had two applicants. We said, oh, look, we don't take you for this job, but there's another job that you could do. Um, but we did the same at, at uh, City Deal, where we grew from, like I don't know, 40 people to like 600 people within a quarter. But we were also very good at weeding them out. And by building this employer brand and kind of getting through people through the door, you kind of kept on upgrading the quality um, there, which is a luxury you don't really have when you're a smaller startup. I, I handed when we when I joined City Deal, I handed over my LinkedIn account at the door, and I literally spent twenty thousand people in Germany. With then, I came across your profile. You're a very special guy. You and me, we should do the future of life shopping together. And there were like five interns doing nothing else than typing. Whether I was whether they spent friends on mine or any random person, there were you just create kind of a funnel to get more people through the door to then upgrade your team quality. And I think that's what many, many people underestimate the whole challenge of talent acquisition and building the early team and getting the right people through the door to kind of have the, your first 10 employees, I would say. In hindsight, I would be much more selective. Yeah, interesting. So the company fails and what happens? Do you get straight into the next thing? Do you go traveling? Do you move back in with your mom? Do you hang out and smoke a pipe and think about what to do next, scratching your beard? 
so uh, we December first we decided to close down, and then everybody said, "Have a nice," and I go like, "No, no, not a nice day." Now we wind down the company, we sell all the tables, we sell computers, we do the bookkeeping and all this other crap, and basically gave back the office to the landlord on the seventeenth of December, and then I say, "Okay, obviously this was not the greatest idea. I still like this uh, startup motion and starting a company, but I'm not going to just jump on the next stupid opportunity because." If I'm honest, my co-founder Max talked me a little bit into this uh, into this opportunity because he was very much driven for this. Um, so then I figured, let's do a long list, look at different uh, spaces, evaluate ideas, and so on. And literally, second week of January, I meet my co-founder Daniel with the idea, and I go like, "That's a great idea. Let's do that one." And we had, uh, I think, we had lunch on Friday in Berlin. And uh, Monday morning, I find myself at the uh, airport in Bulgaria, um, already doing the first first supplier meetings in that week. So pretty pretty swift move into the next thing, right? And like, what do you think about like energy levels and stuff? Because you you know it's worth saying you've done um, City Deal, um, and even though it's all like off after a two year break, like take us through the time period. So um, obviously, City Deal was five months. Then how long between next startup and starting this? Three to six months, maybe. That was because literally, they say the career I had in real estate didn't exist anymore. So even the, during the two two years of of vacationing, I kind of stopped by there from time to time, not really interviewing because there were no jobs, but at least checking in with f- former friends and colleagues um, in the industry to find out what's going on. And I realized that's gone. Then obviously, uh, city deal, I was out. So there was a bit of soul searching, what to do next, um, and so on. When at that time, uh, Max came along with the, with the Miyazato idea. And then basically, I jumped on that one. And then uh, the, the sum up idea also came very much by accident um, towards me. So I think similar to the, to the falling into city deal uh, was similar for sum up, just being lucky to somehow being referred to the right people at the right time. But what what is the moment that made you like think about sum up and think about the opportunity and where you fit in that space most importantly right because not the only person trying to solve you know questions around payments so you have a blank canvas you've got a curious mind you can go in many different directions there's inspiration and there's also too much option so you know, finding the right balance between the two things when you're starting up is a huge challenge as well. So talk to us a little bit about how you uh, conceived the idea and honed in on it. I would love to give this whole inspirational speech here, but literally, I I just got very lucky. I walked into my co-founder, he had a background in payments, and he was very much, uh, let's say, sure that this is the right thing to do. And it sounded convincing to me, so I just jumped on the bandwagon. That's the, that's really, and basically there, there was a, a funding team, a founding team being established, but given that they all had like notice periods and so on, and I <laughs> was luckily unemployed, um, I could literally start tomorrow before the rest of the founding team kind of showed up and joined. I'm trying to work out whilst I'm interviewing you, you know, is there a lot of humility or is some of this true? You know, you just happen to be right place, right time. It's very much right place, right time. Literally, I mean, I never really applied for any job in my life and just kind of showed up because uh, a friend of mine kind of referred me. And there was also, it's, not so, it's also not like I usually apply for like 10 jobs 
It's uh, literally SumHub was the only opportunity, jumped on that one. City Deal Group One was either I go on another vacation or I try this working thing again. And uh, same thing for Miyazato, this friend of mine talking me into going into the fashion business, which was not the greatest idea. But since the I obviously I didn't have anything else to do, I thought let me try this one for a couple of weeks, and uh, then it stuck. And just just as a quick interlude, remind us of the current valuation of SumUp. Now we're very lucky uh, that we announced eight billion earlier this quarter. Yeah, so I think this... we closed around like. Q2 or so. Yeah, so this could be something like, you could have the title of, you know, how to just uh, accidentally stumble into building a unicorn. Well, it also took 10 years since I accidentally stumbled into this. Um, then there was a little bit of hard work and, and more luck uh, involved along the way. So talk to us about the first couple of years. Like, how do you get funding? Like, how do you start to build out the team? What is the problem that you're solving back then? So I think the problem is still very much the same that we're solving. We started out with a very, very large vision. They basically said, look, small merchants are underserved um, by everybody, payments, financial services, software, and so on. And we had this beautiful circle on all the services that merchants would need between payment, accounting, cash register, bookkeeping, uh, uh, I don't know, financing, uh, invoicing, online store, online payments, and this whole thing. And then realized pretty quickly that building the SAP for small merchants overnight is something that we'll probably fail on um, if we undertake all of those. So then we thought payment is kind of the smallest common denominator across all merchants um, because in any economic activity, there's usually payment involved. Um, and payment especially back in the days, was very much luxury good that was very, very expensive for small merchants because when you're the head of a supermarket chain or of a big uh, department store, you're pretty well covered by um, a, somebody that sells you payment because it's very much a sales-driven approach. While when you're the smallest of merchants, um, just access to, to payments becomes very, very expensive. So that's where we saw a big, big opportunity and basically honed in on that one and focused on that by developing a card reader and the whole payment infrastructure in the background to be able to help small merchants to accept card payments. Okay, and you know, in the early days, are there any sort of uh, obvious mistakes or obviously very stressful moments that you can recall, um, assuming that it didn't all go up and to the right the entire time? There was plenty of stressful uh, uh, thoughts. So f first, a couple of the bigger mistakes we did is I was chief sales officer back in the days and it was all about scaling. Obviously, we raised a lot of money and it was we had the, the we were sure that we have the best product under the sun and merchants were just waiting for a solution. It was just a land grabbing game um, there. So in terms of salespeople, I grew the team to nearly 100 salespeople in three countries just to realize that unit economics don't make sense at all because the average revenue we make on a merchant was maybe like 10 bucks or below 10 bucks. At the same time, the salesperson wanted to earn or total cost was like six to 8,000 euros. And then you don't need to be an overly smart um, mathematician to realize when you divide 8,000 by 10, um, that these, uh, this would never work economically. 
And uh, we didn't realize this early enough, so kept on scaling before then really pulling the brake and having, having to re reduce the whole sales headcount very, very sadly again. Um, and then we pivoted from scaling at all costs to a very much payback-driven approach where we said, look, this is how much it costs us to get a merchant on the platform. This is how much revenue we make over the merchant. Now these two numbers need to make sense. And if I don't get the cost of getting the merchant on the platform back within nine months, then it's not a good merchant, something we shouldn't do. And it was quite a shift in mindset that we could have done earlier, um, but it, uh, it's a more intense learning this way, just a very expensive one. Okay. So that's another another great like early lesson. And I think, you know, it's part of the thing. It's like very important for an entrepreneur to go through these these lessons themselves, right? Like ideally you want to learn them on someone else's dime. So you don't always want to make all the mistakes in your own company. Um, and I suppose as well, you know, one of the benefits that you have of raising a lot of money from the start is these decisions don't end up being fatal for you. And it's one of the important things about raising money. Well, you're, you're you know, for listeners that can't see, you know, I'm getting some resistance on Mark's face here. So I'm about to hear the other side of it. I, w I was thinking in, in the not fatal, th those were, we, I think we did like two or three things that were pretty much close to fatal um, along those lines. So I think the, the whole sales exercise uh, cost probably 10 to 20% of our whole funding sound uh, sum that could have nearly killed us. I think another one we did was a very, very quick international expansion. So we launched day one in like four countries, expanded to like 10 countries within four or five months um, and forgot that it would be good to have product market fits before you go to those 10 countries. Because we were talking about hardware earlier, the first generation of our card reader, I'm not sure people still remember those, was the square black one with like an audio jack connected, um, worked flawlessly. However, Visa card didn't allow us to accept Visa cards um, because they wanted to encourage PIN transactions, which was obviously a new thing back in 2012. And thereby, we literally had a MasterCard reader that worked somewhat in Germany because we have a strong uh, a German debit card network that was also supported. But let's say in the UK, where more than half of the cards are Visa cards, it's a quite shit product. Um, at the same time, oh, and actually then further from there, we actually were sure that we need to conquer the world as fast as possible. Um, so we launched Russia within I don't know, nine months or so um, after the original launch. Brazil probably 12 months later. And we even had like a so-called country managers for Canada, Northern Asia, Southern Asia. Um, we, we are actually interviewing one for Africa but then actually realized that that's not going to happen. Uh, Russia made it live, Brazil made it live, and then we realized as a young startup, that's a bit too much for us, um, and uh, actually closed Russia two years later. Brazil, um, we didn't have the visa card problem, and we had a very, very good, uh, uh, let's say, product market fit in that market because we were able to do installments on those transactions, actually financing a small merchant's cash flow by allowing the customer to pay in like six or 12 installments on the phone. And for many years, Brazil was actually one of our strongest countries and very worthwhile and saved the company for a number of years. So I would on one hand say as a recommendation, definitely try to get your product market fit 
in before you launch all of those countries. At the same time, in hindsight, I would do the same at least on the 10 European countries because when we started out, we were probably the first on in mainland Europe. There was some Nordic player, but it, within, I would say, 6 to 12 months, we had at least 20 competitors of people that kind of ordered a dongle uh, somewhere and tried to do this business um, on the on the phone. And I think one of the big differentiating factors we had vis-a-vis investors is was that we, we are the global player that is in 10 countries versus uh, you just covering France or Italy or so on. So there's a bit of a balance between those two things. I think operationally, it made very, very little sense. But from the investor story, this conquering the world definitely resonated well. And then we delivered on it just a couple of years later. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's the idea and then there's actually executing, which is uh, slightly harder. But I guess what I wanted to know is what like what is it that um, made you go so aggressively so fast and, you know, try out your pre product market fit expanding everywhere? Is that inherently who you are? Is it partly your experience with Rocket Internet or was it your investors or a combination of all three? I think it's more the reality of our business is that we make very small margins and very, very little money on the single merchant um, because it's all a, a margin-based business. So on the, you know, the, the, on the single merchant, we make 5 to 10 euros. So obviously you need like a big population of merchants on which you kind of distribute the fixed cost to make the business uh, work. So the larger the market is that you can address, the the more kind of, the, the economic viability of the of the model model comes through and by having the platform that kind of allows you to be to be in 35 countries and then it becomes a big competitive advantage but i think it was very clear from day one that this business would never fly or be economically viable if you stay in one or two countries and you just need a very very large market in terms of uh in order to make this successful the problem we're solving for small, small merchants is very much a global problem. Anywhere in the world, small merchants are always neglected by incumbents and uh, not offered a proper solution, whether that's in payments, but also in software, banking, or any other service we provide um, that we expanded later on. We should talk about this more as well. Um, so I do believe there's a big merit in doing this globally. And I think there's also a lot of learning by expanding to more countries because countries kind of are in different development stages, I would say, in terms of adoption of digital solutions. So you kind of learn a lot from one country to the other and can transfer knowledge back and forth there. And you said, you know, we should talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but, you know, whilst I've got you in the flow and thinking about these things now, tell us what's on your mind. What do you want to share? So we had this idea of building this ecosystem for, for small merchants from the beginning. But then I told you earlier, the the... The funding um, situation was not great uh, in like 14, 15, 16. So we didn't really have the money to invest in anything else for uh, then payments. And then as a good entrepreneur, we said, focus, focus, uh, and uh, focus only. So we built the first, the best card acceptance solutions for small merchants. And with this today, we have 4 million merchant relationships. And once you have those merchant relationships, then you actually realize that there's more you can do to uh, to help those small merchants. So by now, we build out a whole uh, uh, software suite um, offering the point-of-sale uh, software, 
online store software, invoicing, accounting software, gift cards, vouchers, and all of those good things. And also going more into financial services, given that with a card reader, we do accept the money. So the money lies with SumUp. And now we actually allow you to basically keep this on the SumUp account and add an iBand and a card to it. So you actually have like a lightweight uh, bank account um, that we can offer you and thereby you can manage your business uh, much better. When I was doing research on your business, you know, one of the things that really struck me as I would imagine a very challenging period like it is for most businesses, but obviously COVID, right? The last couple of years, if businesses aren't practically physically open, um, how on earth are you going to survive as a business? So talk to me about your experience over the last couple of years. So first of all, where we make money is uh, not on the selling of the card readers, because those we pretty much sell at cost or even at loss um, that we kind of see as a, as a marketing addition. And we don't really impose uh, contracts. So it's all pay as you go. And then obviously with the outset of, uh, of COVID, so there was a pretty, let's say, pretty tough period, so to say. Um, but we were very cost conscious in terms of turning around the company overnight because a big portion of our expense is customer acquisition costs, so marketing and so on. So we literally switched off Google, Facebook and so on overnight and thereby we were able to pivot to a, a cash flow positive, an EBITDA positive company um, to kind of sit out the tough Q2 2020 just because there was a lot of insecurity and a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, just where the future goes. It was, I think, to me, the pivotal day was somewhere in March 18th or 22nd or something like this, where I spoke to one of our lenders in uh, in London, and he said, "Mark, I'm not sure you got this, but the world is ending here. You should directly go into cash conservation." And I was still very much in the growth and uh, let's expand mindset. What's this virus uh, going to change? And then within 48 hours, we kind of turned around the whole company, uh, sent everybody into home office, uh, basically having hundreds of people uh, packing their chair and their, their screen. No, actually didn't pack chairs because uh, at the beginning, it felt like we do this a week or two um, and uh, kind of changed the whole strategy to cash conserv uh, conservation. Um, and then basically stayed home for like a year, year and a half. And after three, four weeks, started shipping chairs to everybody. So you don't have to sit on your kitchen chair, but have a proper office chair <laughs> to work from home. Um, so there was a very, let's say, tough Q2. But then we actually took this and changed this to a very positive energy. Because obviously with merchants sitting home, the card reader is a little bit less relevant. So we invested a lot in all of those uh, all of those solutions for software for merchants that would help them in the current environment. And there was a lot of initiatives spun off where there's like these voucher gift codes. Remember at the early days, you had like all these QR codes at the door. Was I here by a voucher of my business. Uh, back to your back to your city deal experience with Groupon pretty much. <laughs> exactly. Get the service when, 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 we open, when we open up for business again. Having online stores so people could do like delivery and all of those good things. Um, starting also merchant cash advance. So helping people to get funds in that environment and so on. The whole company kind of rallied behind all of those initiatives. Um, and many of them actually became new teams and new products for the company. 
in the meantime. And then I think by like June or so, lockdowns were over and we saw a very nice pickup again where not all merchants, but many were kind of back to business. Um, and then we also started kind of adjusting to the new normal, going into growth mode again from like probably July or so. Uh, what was it like to sort of uh, learn the experience of becoming a, a crisis kind of CEO founder, right? Like moving into a very different kind of experience. Well, it's not, it's not, uh, I would say if there was 10 years of smooth, uh, smooth sailing and then there's the crisis coming along, that would be a bit lying. I think there have been plenty of crises over the, over the years. Uh, so it's, uh, I think it's always this uh, standing on the brake and the gas pedal at the same time. And making sure that you you stop and go as you see uh, as you see fit. Um, what's next? What's next for the company? So you've just raised a big, massive round, so six hundred and twenty-four million at eight and a half billion dollars. So um, what's next? Vegas, black or red? I think there's still like a ton of opportunity out there to help small merchants uh, with their business, and I think this whole going from the card payments company, where we're pretty well known for the card reader, to really become the sum up ecosystem to help small merchants on all of their, all of their, how to say, uh, all of their needs. I think there's still a ton to be done out there. And then also still half of the world is still a white spot for us. So I think further, further uh, global expansion definitely is also on the, on the horizon. What does Endgame look like? Is is this a company you could sell to others, or is this like a IPO? Like, do you think about these questions? I the reality we don't care too much. I think just purely out of size, the number of people that could buy us become very very small, or the number of companies that could buy us become very very small. And we do believe a lot in the consolidation of the space, but we do see ourselves as a consolidator, not as the one being consolidated. I think. As the founding team, we're still very, 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 very excited uh, about the opportunity, having a lot of fun running the company. And we're also in our early 40s. So it's not like there's any rush to retirement. And I think we can maintain this for a number of years. Obviously, then with size becomes a challenge. Um, but there's a ton of opportunity out there. Yeah, it's interesting because I was, you know, reflecting the other day on, um, you know, People say a lot of the time, you know, the, the main reason that your startup fails is you run out of money. Actually, you know, obviously failure is a bit of a spectrum. Um, but actually, I think one of the main reasons why startups fail also is just like founders or leaders run out of motivation. Right. You run out of the energy and the desire to keep building, keep outthinking your competitors, keep outthinking yourself yesterday, most importantly. Um and, you know, like you've just said, you know, you're in your early 40s, you guys still have the hunger and desire to do it. So why stop? And I think that's like a, a very common trait I've heard from the people that I interview about, you know, the difference between building a successful dynasty player, you know, big, big businesses um, versus the others. It just all comes down to like whether you can be bothered to do it or not. And, and I think yes, and it has a lot to do with time. I mean, we're doing this for 10 years. It still feels relatively early. And there's still a ton of opportunity out there. I would now say we had the Jeff Bezos where it's still day one. We did achieve a number of things that we're pretty proud of. But I think there's a, still a ton more opportunity out there. And uh, it's definitely a long game. So we'll, we'll be around another 10 years. Um, to wrap it up, you know, I am reminded just speaking to you because you talk a lot about luck. 
Um, I think it's Confucius, but I'll probably just end up with the wrong wrong quote. Someone will end up correcting me on social media, no doubt. Um, who said, you know, preparation meets opportunity. That's luck. Um, and you've talked a lot about being lucky. Um, how how much do you think that that is true? Reflecting back on, like, you know, if you think about how you've you've set out your your course of your life, you know, there's a lot of preparation in the category. If you think about it, you just talked you know, even about reflecting with a story where actually your city deal and Groupon experience would come in so, so valuable, right? So there's that preparation and there's opportunity for what doesn't exist there and being able to analyze and see the spot. So is that luck or is that, um, you know, uh, insight? I think it's definitely luck. It's, it's literally being at the right time at the right moment. It's, preparation was never my strong force in my high school yearbook. Uh, a number of people wrote would be great if uh, Mark can show up on time and bring pens and paper to class. Um, so I'm more the, let's say, winging it usually when I when I show up. Um, and I think uh, it's just lucky and having, say, I think the, the big key was that I had the freedom of mind to just jump on the next opportunity when it came along. There was, a, the, I think the moment you're busy doing something. I think I'm pretty sure in the last 10 years, there was plenty of opportunities, but because I was so, let's say, focused and driven on sum up, they kind of just fly by. And would I have quit my job in order to join sum up? Who knows what the job would have been at the time. But given that I literally was unemployed, just killed the last startup four weeks ago, the opportunity cost of kind of saying, okay, let me check this out, join for a couple of months and see how it goes was very very low same when i took the job in new york uh when i joined city deal when i started miosato it's just this this freedom of uh, mind share they just say okay nothing else to do let me go check this out and not be afraid or over evaluate of the opportunity because i see a lot of people these days that kind of say okay should i do this should i do that and then they overthink the whole thing and four months later they're still thinking whether they should uh, start a shoe company or a deal platform in where in the meantime, if they would have started and done something, they would have figured out whether they're on the right or on the wrong uh, wrong way and then could have adjusted course there as well. So I think this just starting out is a big, uh, it's definitely what brings luck to you. Just try it out, go and then uh, evaluate every step along. You don't, if, if you try to now engage on your next 10 year challenge, and you're super afraid that if you now take the wrong decision, you run the wrong direction for the next 10 years. That's the problem. Just go do something. Tell you, give yourself a 90-day horizon. If it works, plan for another 90 days and go from there. And if not, just drop it and do something else. Mark Alexander Christ, co-founder of SumUp, on how to make the most of the luck you get in life. Next week on Secret Leaders. Everyone that directly touched Steve had a personal responsibility to make things great. Passionate detachment is the way that I ended up understanding that, which was be utterly passionate, utterly into something, up, but be ready to, for it to be dead by tomorrow morning and start again. And you did that over and over and over again, and thousand no's for every yes, and the only things that come out are great. That's James Vinson. He worked with Steve Jobs for 11 years, making some of Apple's biggest ad campaigns. Since then, he's worked with Airbnb's Brian Chesky, Snaps Evan Spiegel, and many others. 
Find out what it was really like to work with Steve Jobs and what James has learned building enduring brands for iconic companies. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and it was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolomon.